And we didn't do that. So let's just pause for a moment. Can you put to frame our prayers uh, using the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? Here's my remote. And likewise, what we're going to see as, as, as we open up uh, Ephesians chapter 5 this morning is that not just framing our prayers the way that Jesus taught us to pray, but living our lives the way that Jesus designed and taught us to live our lives. And so last week, uh, in last week's sermon, Mark Luker made the comment uh, preaching on uh, Ephesians 5 verses 1 to 21. He made the comment uh, telling a story about Tim Keller and an interaction with a young woman. He said, we're saved entirely on the basis of Jesus, and because of that, God asks for unrestricted obedience. And so we're going to explore this morning, as we look at verses 21 through 33 of Ephesians 5, just the the implications of that. How unrestricted is this obedience? And what does it mean for us as God's people, as uh, chapter 5 verse 1 says, to follow God's example or be imitators of God? What does that look like specifically this morning when that comes uh, to marriage? But also, you know, for those of us who are single, for those of us who are divorced, who are widows or widowers. So uh, I invite you to follow along on the screen or you can open up your Bibles and follow along. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing her with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without sin or stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated their own body. But they, do, they feed and care for their own body just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. You can see or, or I hope feel that Paul's building something, to something here. And what he's building to is this uh, reference back to Genesis 2. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife, as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I said a few weeks ago, we've got this picture up here because we're seeing uh, Ephesians as... Uh, or getting into the section of Ephesians as practical advice for life in the Spirit. And so just as we train and and equip ourselves in all kinds of practical ways to be physically fit and healthy, so also uh, we need practical advice and training for life by the Spirit. And so if it's true what we said last week, not only what what Paul wrote in chapter 5, verses 1 to 22, and also uh, that story that We're saved entirely on the basis of Jesus, and so God asks for unrestricted obedience. If that's true, then where does marriage fit in? 
This is always a text that all the women in the church love to hear, right? Um, and, and I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek because, unfortunately, so many people in our culture and in our world have a, a vision or a picture of this text and of other texts that basically says, well, uh, the Bible says that wives have to do whatever their husband tell them, tells them to do. And uh, many husbands have happily gone along with that interpretation. It makes our lives easier to be able to say, no, you have to tell, you have to do what I say. Because the Bible says submit. That means do whatever I tell you, whenever I tell you, and don't talk back, right? But whenever we get ourselves into those kinds of situations, we need to be very careful. We need to remember that uh, actually what's going on in this text is an explanation or a practical working out of what Paul said in verse 1. Be imitators of God. Copy the example of God. And so whether it comes to marriage or any of the other topics we're going to talk about, one of the first checks that we need to use on ourselves is to say, what, is the life that I'm living, is the thing that I'm doing, is the, is the thing that I'm asking someone else to do, is that in line with the example that God has given? So what about marriage in particular? Well, reflecting on this section, N.T. Wright says, uh, and specifically about that reference to Genesis 2, he says, this passage is full of psychological insight. Often what pulls a marriage off course is the failure of one or the other partner to distance themselves emotionally with their parents or from their parents and to, to devote themselves fully to their spouse. This is worth pondering in itself, end quote. I think uh, N.T. Wright is correct that uh, for those of us who are married or who have been married, we know that the most important thing in marriage is to be totally devoted to your spouse. It doesn't work if, uh, as, as a wife, you are always going back and, and spending evenings with, with your parents and away from your husband. It doesn't work as a husband if you're mostly devoted to your wife, but then you're also spending long hours on the internet by yourself, meeting your own needs, whatever those are, or supposed needs. The picture that we have in Scripture, all the way back in Genesis, is that a man and a wife will both leave their families. The two will become one flesh. They'll be totally devoted to each other and united in a way that can't just be dissolved. Certainly not simply or within God's good plan. That doesn't mean, of course, it doesn't happen, or that marriages don't fall apart. But Paul, uh, here, and, and for the entirety of Israel's history and the history of God's people, Genesis 2 was always taken as a, as a theological instructive or, or a, a theological given that this is what marriage is supposed to be. A husband leaves his parents uh, uh, and is united with his wife, and the two of them become one flesh. They start a new family. They're completely devoted to each other. That was never questioned. It was never up for debate. It was always taken as given. But Paul, in this passage, is doing something radical, the shock of which we have totally lost. Paul's taking this interpretation, which has only ever been about a husband and a wife, 
And he's saying that actually, this isn't just about a husband and a wife. Actually, what I'm talking about is Christ and the church. That had never been done before. Nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the, all of the many thousands of, of books and manuscripts that we have of Jewish writing, nobody ever took this passage in Genesis 2 and applied it to anyone other than the marriage between a, a husband and a wife. But Paul says, actually, this is broader than that. This is about more than just what happens in the marriage bed. Another way to say that is that uh, I think both, well, well, we'll set aside the, the ancient context for a moment. In our world today, we think of sex and physical intimacy. We think of sex as the climax of knowing. So probably many of you have heard jokes, right, about well, knowing each other in the biblical sense, right? And that joke comes from uh, English translations of, uh, like the King James Version, that translate the Hebrew word for knowing, uh, and, and because that's what the Hebrew word is. In Hebrew, the word for knowing can be used to, to, to know your coworker, uh, to know your parents, to, to know information and facts about someone, to be friends. But it also says in Genesis that uh, Adam left, or Adam was united to his wife, Adam knew his wife, and then they had a son. We think in our culture of sex as the, the climax of knowing. That there's a certain way you, you know stats about someone from a baseball card. You know uh, your coworkers a little bit. You might even know your family intimately and have all kinds of shared experiences. But, but the most intimate kind of knowing that we can think of is sex and sexual intercourse. But what Paul is saying here is that actually there is a deeper way or a deeper kind of knowing. That intimacy with God is actually the climax of every kind of knowing. That's the point that Paul is making here. Intimacy with God is the climax of every other kind of knowing. Intimacy with God is the best kind of knowledge that you can have. Now think about that for a moment. And think of the, imagine the corrective that that is and that that would be to our broken sexuality and our broken understanding of marriage and of gender roles. Imagine if as a husband, if the, for those of you who are husbands, if, you're, if you saw your role not as, as loving your wife so that uh, she would be happy, but as loving your wife so that you were helping her closer to intimacy with God. So that as a husband, your primary role was to help your wife grow in closer relationship with God. And that how and and, uh, the nature of your sexual relationship, but also the nature of your physical intimacy, of your emotional interactions, of uh, how or whether you decide to have children and, and how you interact with people around you, that all of that as a husband was geared toward how am I going to help my wife deepen her relationship and her intimacy with God? And what about as a as a wife? You, you would have then, then a, a barometer or a metric, especially to be able to face some of the, the ingrained, uh, sort of ingrained, I think, 
pushing or, or, or subordination of women, especially if you're facing those kind of contexts in the church or in our society. That your, your barometer or your bar was not, well, I have to do X, Y, and Z because my husband tells me to. But say, I'm going to submit to my wife the way that Christ, or the way the church submits to Christ. Excuse me, as a wife, you're going to say, I'm going to submit to my husband the way that the church submits to Christ. In other words, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do for my husband and give to my husband the things that help him grow in his intimacy with Christ. And when he asks me or tells me to do something that's not going to help him, I'm going to use the discernment and the wisdom that God has given me to say, actually, no, I'm going to do something else. And to be able to see that as a submissive love for husband that, that, desire, or that, that, that directs him deeper into his intimacy with God. And think about also the blessing and the benefit and the beauty of that kind of interaction, of those kind of interactions, for people who are outside of the marriage, for people who are single, for people who are divorced, for people who are widows or widowers. Again, when we talk about people being blessed by our marriage or, or inviting people to enjoy the blessings of our marriage, our minds immediately jump to, to sex or, or to some kind of physical interaction that would be inappropriate or, or, or just, yeah, not helpful even to speak about, certainly in a sermon. But if it's true that God's design for a husband and a wife is that they would help one another grow in intimacy with God, then if you're doing that as a husband for your wife, those skills are transferable. The humility that it takes as a husband to put your needs aside so that your wife can grow in relationship with God is the same humility that it takes to rear your children. It's the same humility that it takes to honor your in-laws or, or other people at, in, in a Christian community. And it's the same kind of love that draws others into the kingdom of God. And likewise, as, as a wife, if you're married, to, to submit to your husband, not just being forced to say yes to everything he says, but rather to say, I'm going to use my wisdom and discernment to, to direct help direct my husband deeper into a relationship with God. That's the same. You, you can use that skill set to be a blessing to all kinds of people. And if that's the goal of your marriage, to use what God has given you to draw one another into intimacy with God, then, then the, all the blessings that God gives you are going to flow over to all kinds of other people. Then if you are married, your, your marriage will be a blessing to others. And if you're not married, others' marriages will be a blessing to you and you will be able to thank God for the marriages of other people because the blessings that God has given them have flown in or, or flown, flown out and blessed you. I think this is what Jesus is talking about when he tells so many parables about life in the kingdom of God. Several of the Gospels mention Jesus' parables, or, or all the Gospels mention different of Jesus' parables, but Matthew especially talks about the parables of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus has this one parable at the end of Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the pearl. And in the parable of the pearl, Jesus says there's a, there's a merchant 
And the merchant uh, finds this beautiful, invaluable pearl hidden in a field. Not invaluable, meaning it's not valued, but invaluable, meaning that its worth can't be valued. It can't be counted. It's, it's so extraordinarily valuable. And, and Jesus says that this merchant, finding the pearl, buries it again. He goes and sells everything he has. And then he buys the field, digs up the pearl. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Now, we need to think about that for a moment if we're going to understand how that has anything to do with marriage. Think about it this way. Before uh, the merchant found the pearl, he was able to feed himself, clothe himself, care for his family. He was a successful businessman. He no doubt was buying and trading. This is what it means to be a merchant. And he was making money at it, otherwise he wouldn't have been. Then he sells everything he has. He has nothing left except for this field that apparently has got nothing going on except to have a pearl buried in it. And so after he finds the pearl, he has no way of caring for himself. He has no way of feeding his family. He has no future at all. In fact, the only future he has would be to sell the pearl which he already gave up everything just to have. And Jesus says, well, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Too often when we think of marriage and when we think of sex as the climax of intimacy, we imagine that marriage is God's gift to me for me. That if, I, if, if, if we're blessed with a spouse or if that's a choice that we decide to make, that that's something that's for me. But actually, the, the truth of the kingdom of God is that every gift and blessing God gives us is something that's meant to be shared with others. It's meant to become a blessing for and to others. That the blessings God give us, gives us always overflow into obedience and blessing and sharing with others. And so with the pearl... This man who who sells everything he has to find this invaluable thing now has a choice. He can either hoard it and starve or he can give it away and trust God to provide for what he needs. That's, I think, what marriage or, or some of what Paul is getting at here when he says that the picture of husbands loving their wives and of wives submitting to their husbands, both following the model of Christ's love for the church. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. That marriage is not some, or marriage or sexual intercourse or intimacy is not some goal that we should aspire for or aspire to. But that rather, rather, whether we are married or not, intimacy with God is the goal. And for those of us who are married, our, intimate, our physical and emotional and all those other kinds of ways that we are intimate with one another is only a blessing that we can share with others so that all of us can uh, find deeper intimacy with God. A note here about uh, the first century family that I hope will help uh, illustrate this just a little bit more and then we'll close. In the first century, uh, when, a, when a husband left his 
parents' home and started his own family, united with his, was united with his wife. They, uh, the, the Greek word for that is oikos, and I've gone into that with you before. But the Greek word oikos for family means not only a, a, the people, the family, but it also means the household, a sort of broader family, and also the, the building, the structure itself. And so uh, family in the first century meant security. It meant economic security because every business was a family business. And so you're part of the economy because you're part of the family. It meant physical uh, security because they have four walls around you and a door that bolts at night so that you're safe. It meant relational security, that you have a place in a family and as a part of a family, you have a place in a broader society. Your relationships and your societal interactions are secure. And it meant intimacy of the of of every kind, the physical kind, the emotional kind, and, and the sexual kind with, with a spouse. When Jesus, or excuse me, when Paul takes this definition of marriage and a family and he says, actually, I'm talking about Christ and the church, what he's saying is that our hope and our security isn't in our our economic participation, it isn't in our physical safety, it isn't even in our relational or our intimate, or the security that we have in relationships or in intimacy. Our hope and our security as Christians is only in Jesus. Because Jesus is the perfect son who left his father's house to be united with his bride. And, and Jesus' union with humanity was one that was that, that could never be dissolved. Jesus became one flesh with us. So even after his death, even after, after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus ascended into heaven and is, is seated. He's got his butt in heaven, seated on the throne in heaven. He's got a real body. Jesus' union with his bride becoming human was, was so tight that Jesus', Jesus incarnation is, is permanent. It's eternal. It's forever. And so, of course, in our sinful world, in our, in our broken world, all of us know of relationships that are broken, whether that's, uh, whether that's divorce or death. Or, or a marriage that stays together and yet is full of pain and bitterness. Likewise, people who would love to be married but can't find a spouse. Our world is full of all kinds of examples of a relationship between a man and a woman that don't work out. But we don't put our hope in those relationships. We put our hope in Jesus. And so as Christians, whether we're married or single, whether we're divorced or widows or widowers, our security and our hope is in Jesus. And when that's true, then we can give everything else away. We don't have to fight for anything else. We don't have to claw for, I need this from you. Our security, our hope is in him. Let's pray. Father God, we are so good 
at taking your good design for marriage, for all kinds of relationships, and forgetting that you've designed us to live lives that are really for your glory. Instead, we're so good at making things about us. God, whether it's, whether it's marriage or any other relationship, forgive us for the times that we twist your good plan for our personal benefit. And instead, Lord, instill in us once again the joy of knowing that when we put our hope in you and that when you are our security, that blessings abound, that we not only have enough for me, we are blessed in order to be a blessing, that we can share blessings innumerable with others within our family and outside of it because we are, you are making us more and more into a new people, a people not joined by biology or, or by uh, physical intimacy, but people joined by uh, bowing down and calling you Father. So, Lord, we come to you this morning. We call you Father. We, we, we prayed our prayer of submission in the Lord's Prayer just before this. And so now, Lord, we ask for your blessing. Fill us once again and direct us to do your will as we go out into this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand and join us in.